Good morning. I so appreciate friends of all these years. Uh, it's good to know that there are finishers that you know that you're going to be part of finishing the course with, because a lot of people over the years have dropped out, and we've lost some friends who have been with the went to be with the Lord. We've lost some other friends who have just walked away from the faith. So Charlie has been a dear friend all these years, and uh, Pastor Charlie's a house builder for the kingdom of God. I, on the other hand, am a spiritual pyromaniac, so the combination this morning should be very interesting. I want to speak to you this morning about Paul, the measure of a man of God. We're in a day where people are looking to superhero movies to find their role models as to what life should be about. Um, I remember back in the 80s that Tina Turner saying, we don't need another hero. Everybody in that generation said, yeah, we don't need another hero. And yet they kept looking for heroes. And today it's like an internal thing that God has placed in us, um, a craving for something more, for something uh, spiritual. It's in, it's in everyone. And God wants to give birth to the kingdom of Jesus Christ in people. But we need to bring the message of who he is in clarity in a world that thinks they already know God. How many people know people that say, well, I'm spiritual, but you know that they don't know Jesus. It's a delusion. And we need to bring them the truth of who Jesus Christ is in clarity, that he's the ultimate hero, the ultimate role model. But Paul the Apostle has always hit me as someone who, as I, I study his life, I thought, I want to be like that too. And Paul was able to say in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Paul was a finisher. He saw his faith all the way through to the end. I want to be like that too. I want to be that kind of believer. You know, how many know, you don't have to answer this, but how many know Donald Trump is not going to save us? Okay. I've just identified all the Democrats in the House. How many know that Hillary Clinton is not going to save us? Now I've identified all the Republicans in the House. We can move on. Jesus Christ is the only one that can ultimately um, save a person's life. And we're not hanging on to this life. This life is a passing thing. And the older I get, the more I realize how quickly it passes and how important the moments are that we take and the, how important it is to read and study the Word of God. And the more I've read and studied the Word of God, the more it's become clear to me how important it is to follow the precepts that God has laid down in his word in the Old Testament and in, in Jesus Christ and in the teaching of Paul and Peter and, and all the apostles. So I want to focus a little bit today on who this man Paul was and what are some of the things that we can pick up. Maybe you can just, I'm going to go through a lot of scriptures very quickly, write down the scriptures, maybe a word or two about what we're going to say about who this man Paul was. Paul, first of all, he was 1 Corinthians 11, when he said, imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. That's a bold statement. I don't know that I'd want to say that myself because I, I have some, you know, stumbling every once in a while. But Paul had that confidence, not in himself, but he was so focused on Jesus, he was able to say, go ahead and follow me because I'm, I'm right on target here. I know where I'm going in following Jesus. 
Who was this man, though? First of all, he was a Pharisee. There were different sects of the Jewish community. There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in heaven. Uh, they didn't believe in angels or the supernatural. The Pharisees believed in a definite heaven and a judgment and angels and all of that. And I think that's one of the reasons Jesus was probably harder on the Pharisees, because they were almost there. But they let all this bondage keep them from uh, being the messengers that they were supposed to be. When Jesus said he was the light of the world, and when he told us that we were to be the light of the world, that was a direct speaking to the Old Testament when Jesus, when the Word of God said the Old Testament, that the Jews were supposed to be the light of the world. And when Jesus came around, he realized, he said, you have not fulfilled what God told you to do. And so he was very hard on them for that. But Paul was of that sect of the Pharisees. He was a disciple of Gamaliel. And you read about Gamaliel in Acts 5, 34 through 39. The apostles had just been jailed. They kept on getting jailed and beaten for speaking the word of God over and over again, but it didn't stop them. It made them happy. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the kingdom of God and for the name of Jesus. So they uh, finally, you know, set them aside again, and they took in a council of the Pharisees, and it says, um, let me tell you one thing before I get into this. Uh, we're going to read Acts 5, 34 through 39. Gamaliel was the grandson of Rabbi Hillel, who was one of the most noted and respected rabbis in all of Jewish history. So he had quite a lineage, and this is the person that Paul the Apostle sat under. But here we read the first time in Scripture, it says, One in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, Take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain. And all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this, if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. So Gamaliel... Paul's teacher had enough of the understanding of how God works to say, hey, you don't want to touch this if God's in it. He wasn't just going to come out and say, I know God's not. He said, look, if it's not of God, it'll fail. it is of God, you better not touch it. You better be careful. It may not be that Paul got the message at that point. We don't know. But Paul said of himself after his mighty conversion in Acts 22.3, he said, I indeed am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you are today. So Paul was a strict disciple of this man. Some people say Paul was a murderer. He was really an executioner. I mean, if you want to go into the legalities of it, um, he actually had legal permission to do what he did. Not that it was the right thing to do, but he was operating under the assumption that this was something that he had fully sanctioned to do from the Jewish community and from the rabbinical community, and therefore had the sanction of God until uh, Jesus knocked him off his horse and said, who are you persecuting? And he says, well, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus. I'm the one that you're going after, and that changed everything. Paul was a Roman and a Jew, and he used that to his advantage. 
Uh, he could speak to the Jewish people as a Jewish person. And we came before the Roman council. He got a lot of people in trouble when they put him in persecution. He says, do you think that's a good idea to put a Roman? On? He says, we didn't know you were a Roman. It cost me a lot of money to be a Roman. He says, I'm freeborn. I was born a Roman. So, but he used that because he had one goal. I remember telling you he wanted to be a finisher. His goal was to preach the gospel to Caesar. And nothing was going to stop him from that. He was so focused on that, incredibly focused. So Paul was mostly a prisoner during his career. And the thing that is absolutely mind-boggling is he chose to be a prisoner a lot of times when they could have set him free. There was one time when the authorities said, we could have set you free if you hadn't appealed to Caesar. Now we have to hold on to you. And Paul knew that because you know what Paul knew? He wasn't a prisoner of Rome. He wasn't a prisoner of Caesar. He was a prisoner of no man because he was a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I, Paul, a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he knew that as long as he was the Lord's prisoner, no man could bind him. No man had control over him. For the sake of his call, he was willing to give up his freedom. Paul was very focused. Philippians 3, 13, 14, he said, brethren... I count myself not to have apprehended. He's like, I'm not there yet. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You know, there's a lot of people, I think, in the churches that will spend their whole life regretting what they haven't done, what they could have done, what they should have done, what they did do that they regret that they did. You know, and it's so, you know, life goes by some, so short. At some point, I, I needed to stop writing protest letters to CBS for counseling, canceling Mork and Mindy, you know? At some point, you just got to move on to something else. It goes by so fast. Don't live your life regretting what happened. You know, I love the scripture that says, his mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. At some point, don't live your life in, in the past. Get that heart of Paul says, forgetting those things that lie behind. Whatever it was, it's over. It was over the morning I woke up, the moment I woke up. Everything was under the blood of the precious Jesus. And now I'm pressing on to what's ahead. I want to grab the prize that God's put before me of the high calling in Jesus Christ. We have to stay focused on what's coming, not what's been. Paul was fearless. Acts 20, 22 through 24, he was about to leave Ephesus. Uh, he was going to Jerusalem. There had already been prophecies saying, hey, you're going to really suffer if you do this. You're going to be bound. And Paul said this. He said, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing that things will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I might finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel the grace of God. He didn't care what was coming, because he knew where he was going. He didn't care what he would suffer because he lived under the shadow of Messiah who suffered the ultimate suffering. And he knew nothing could be compared to that. And his sufferings weren't worthy to be compared with the sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. He counted it an honor. So he wasn't afraid of suffering because he knew that even then it was going to be part 
and something that would go to the glory of God. Paul was unaffected by circumstances. Philippians 4, 12 through 13. Paul said, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. It's a very powerful word. You know, there's a lot of uh, debate and a lot, there's, there's churches that their sole focus is what they call the prosperity message. And uh, no, no, I don't agree with that. But I also know that there are people who consider suffering and poverty a badge of honor. I don't agree with that either. A friend of mine at Bible school, a teacher at Bible school, said something to me that stuck with me all the years. And she said, there's as many poor people going to hell for the love of money as there are rich people. I thought, wow, that'll stick with you. Because it's not about how much you have. It's about whether those possessions have you. What is your goal? What's got a hold of you? And we have to come to that place where you can say, like Paul, I'm okay with having hardship. That's all right if it's for the glory of God. I'm okay if God wants to bless me with a lot of, you know, stuff. Because if it's for the glory of God. None of those things were an attachment for Paul. And the Lord spoke to me a couple of years. He said the time would come in the church when God was only going to bless those who would do this when God blessed financially. Those who would just let those blessings flow from God's hand to their hand and right out to others. And that's how you learn. If you're abased, fine. If you abound, fine. It doesn't matter. I want to have that kind of heart that's not set on the things of this world, that's looking for the kingdom to come. Paul was open to course correction. How many know if you've been in ministry long enough, walk with the Lord long enough, it's full of surprises and left-hand turns and, wow, I didn't expect that. And I mean, it can get really, really crazy. Well, Paul had to be open to that. In Acts 16, 6 through 10, it says, Now when they had gone through Phrygia in the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. That's kind of a shocker, you know, because we think, okay, we have to go out in the world preach the gospel to every creature, but there's times when the Holy Spirit said, obviously, I don't want you to go in there and preach the gospel. So you have to be open to the voice of the Holy Spirit, because just because we think it should be done doesn't mean it should be done. We have to listen for the permission of the Holy Spirit to do things. And, and then it says, after they'd come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia. How come we didn't have Bible school classes on how to pronounce Bible stuff? I mean, when you get into the Old Testament sometimes, you know, you could just really stumble over a thousand different pronunciations. So I'm going to recommend that to somebody. Okay, rabbit trail. So they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. There again, the Holy, they had their idea, and the Holy Spirit said, no, I don't want you to do that. I want you to do this. And they were willing for the course correction. And then it says, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, and a man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So they were hindered. At some point, the Holy Spirit said no at some point, and then later, uh, well, I'll get to that in a minute. But he knew how to respond to God's course corrections. If you walk with him long enough, you need to listen when he's telling you to go to a different direction, maybe that you hadn't planned, and be open to those corrections. Paul was unconcerned with opinions. 1 Corinthians 4.3, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. You know, in a Facebook age, when how many likes you get determines your self-worth, 
We need to listen to this. Paul didn't care how many likes he got on his Facebook. I saw a fun cartoon the other day. It had a Cro-Magnon man with a big club, and he had just knocked out another Cro-Magnon man, and it says how we used to unfriend people in the old days. <laughs> Paul didn't care how many likes he got. He didn't care how people felt. Paul was not the kind of person that would sit around and say, I wonder if they like my message. I wonder if I offended anybody. He didn't look, he didn't even examine himself. He didn't say, did I do wrong? No, he went right to the Holy Spirit and said, God, you're the one that examines my heart. And it's good that when we come to a place, because once you start speaking the truth in this day and age, you're going to get a lot of unfriending and you're going to get a lot of, you know, dislikes on your personal spiritual Facebook page or ministry page. Um, if you get a chance afterwards, feel free to go in the back. I've got a ton of books out there. One of the books that really uh, it got me in a lot of trouble is called Trojan Church. It was, uh, the Lord showed me what was coming to the body of Christ somewhere around between 2002 and 2004. And I thought, I got to write, I just felt compelled to write what I saw, what was coming. And uh, I had no idea that it was going to be as relevant as it is even today because I was addressing some issues that churches didn't want to look like, like the infection of yoga into the church, uh, uh, people who, had, who were writing books that was, had, you know, thoughts and, and theology that was totally whacked out, but people didn't have the discernment to see it. And now it's just now starting to manifest. But I had to come to a point because I lost friends who were pastors and youth pastors. I got in a lot of trouble over that book, but I had to learn from the heart of Paul. It doesn't matter. I'll never forget uh, when I was in the process of writing that book at another church, and I sat there on the front row. I said, God, I, I, just, I, I don't want to do this, okay? Can't I just make this portion a little softer? And um, the Lord led me to a scripture where he spoke to one of the prophets and says, do not diminish a word. So Paul, uh, God was not concerned how I would be received. He was concerned that I obeyed him in speaking the truth. Paul got that, he understood that, and he's been a model to me spiritually that I could come to a point where I say, I don't care what people think. I don't even look at my own heart. I look at Jesus and he's the one that examines my heart and can change the things that he needs to change. Paul was a warrior of Ephesians Chapter 6, verse 10 through 17, the whole armor of God. It's an incredible chapter. When you start to read, you understand. I did another book out there called War of the Ages. It's about spiritual warfare. It's a big book. It's like almost 400 pages. I did a whole portion on the armor of God because as I studied it, I learned things I hadn't seen before. And Paul was, he knew spiritual warfare and he observed. He, and he often referred to the culture around him. Uh, he referred to the races of his time, he referred to the arenas of his time, he referred to the, uh, the Roman conquerors who came in uh, with, their, with their parades. He, he used those and said, looked at it, he says, this is what it means as a believer to see this. And so he took the Roman army and he took every bit of armor apart and said, this is how it works spiritually. Even down to the, now I, I really love the whole, you know, the whole armor, the war, the spiritual war, I love all of that. The battles, you know, the whole Lord of the Rings type of, you know, they're in 
conquerors. I, I love all that. But it's always the, the big swords. You know, you get the swords, you got that's like 10 foot long, and you're, you know, lopping off heads and all. I love that stuff. And, and so it was really shocked to me when I read about the sword of the Spirit that we're supposed to take in, in the book of Ephesians. It's not a 10 foot long sword, it's a dagger. And when I saw that, I realized Paul was saying, this war with the enemy is up close and personal. You can't fight somebody with a dagger that's 10 feet away. You have to have them by the throat. And that's what we need to do with the enemy. That's real warfare. You want to know you're going to fight the enemy, you have to realize you're going to have to be eyeball to eyeball with him to do that. That's real spiritual warfare. So I'm thankful that Paul had those understandings, was able to pass on to us what that spiritual warfare was. And Paul received that opposition. He said in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2.18, he says, therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. You know, I know some people in spiritual warfare that would probably say, well, Paul wasn't very spiritual because he allowed the devil to stop him. Hey, you know, warfare is warfare. Mario uh, Murillo said spiritual life, Christian life is not like a war. The Christian life is a war. And there's times when you will be hindered. There's, you know, if it's a real war, it's a real battle, and sometimes the enemy wins. I know people don't, Christians will like to hear that, but sometimes you're going to lose some skirmishes. We know Jesus has the ultimate victory, but we're going to lose skirmishes as well as win them, and we need to be prepared for that, because I know Christians, when they really came toe-to-toe, you know, we all get brave when we get out of Bible school. I'm going to go conquer the world for Jesus, and then the devil bloodies your nose, and you're like, well, I wasn't planning on that. Well, read the book. You know, this is real. The war is real. And sometimes you don't win all the battles. But the point is, is if you lose the battle, you get back up and you keep fighting and you keep fighting and you keep fighting. Because the warrior's war is never done till they leave this life. Paul was very disciplined. 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27, this chapter, this portion means a lot to me. He says, therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight not as one who beats the air. In other words, I'm not shadow boxing. I'm not going after things that don't matter. You know, folks, our biggest enemy this age, whether it's social media or just entertainment or just whatever, is distraction. We're so distracted. We're so caught up in things that don't matter. Paul said, I'm not caught up in things that don't matter. I'm connecting. Every time I throw my fist out there, I've connected. But where did Paul connect those fists the most? This is what's kind of surprising. He said, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. In other words, one of the translations says, I take my own fists and I bloody my own eyes. And why? Why does he do that? Why is he so brutal on himself? He says, lest when I have been preached to others, I myself would be cast away, the King James says. That's a good picture. The other one is disqualified. He says, I don't want to be disqualified. You know, we can think of that in terms, anybody, uh, is anybody the water boy at sports in school besides me? Is there any water boys out there, or, you know, the ones that just didn't quite make the team? You know, and the thing is, it's like, I want to be in the game. I want to be in the game. And this analogy applies there too. It's because the worst thing in the world if you're in sports is to get benched. Paul was saying, I don't want to be benched. And I'm willing to suffer what I need to. I'm willing to discipline myself as much as I need to 
because I don't want my flesh to overcome me and be disqualified from the race that God's put before me. I thank God that God is the God of second chances too because there are times sometimes when you've been disqualified that God benches you for a while and then he says, all right, we done, get back in the game. I'm thankful for those times. Paul turned prisons into places of praise. They were in jail in Acts 16.25. It said, at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And when that happened, there was, you know, the whole place was shaken up, and the gates fell away, they unlocked, and, and they were free. And that's a real key there. And as I was telling people last night, uh, there are some of us, and you don't have to raise your hand on this, but there's some Christians who have had the experience of being attacked in the middle of the night by some sort of uh, nefarious demonic force, and you're like, why is this happening to me? Uh, because I came from that kind of an occult background, the enemy is not let go very easily, and it, that was something that happened from time to time. I'd be sleeping, and something would show up in my room and try to attack me spiritually, a real demonic force. That can really spook you out if you're a believer. I think it's a more common experience than Christians like to talk about. And, and I've heard people say, nobody's ever talked about this before. Well, here's the key. It doesn't matter why it happened. Here's the key. And I found this out after a while, getting attacked like this. I finally, when I did get attacked, I would pick up my Bible, I'd turn on the light, and I'd say, all right, if devil, if you're going to show up, let's read some scriptures together. And then I would go to Psalm 91 and just read it out loud, and it, about five seconds later, the, these things were nowhere to be seen. I'd turn on the worship music and the praise music, and everything would just get dispersed. I love the old Keith Green song. I'm going to butcher the song, but uh, uh, part of the words say, when I, God was saying, when I hear the praise, when I hear the praises start, I want to rain upon you. Uh, joy that will fill your heart. I see no stain upon you. Because you are my child and you know me, to me you're only holy. Nothing that you've done remains only what you do for me. There's something about praise and worship that when things are going rough, you just get that worship music and you play it in your house, in your car, and that's going to break up those prisons and those chains. And I love that analogy. I love that, that truth of what happened to Paul and Silas when they praised Holy Spirit showed up, the angels showed up, miracles happened. Paul was self-deprecating, humble, yet he knew who he was. He said in 1 Corinthians 3, 4 through 8, he says, For one says, I am of Paul, and another I am of Apollos. Are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos? But ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase, so that neither he who plants in it is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Paul was saying, it's not about me, it's not about Apollos. You know, we're in an age of superstar Christianity. You know, big name Christians that will, you know, be able to fill the arenas. I'm okay if that's for the glory of God, but so much of it seems like, almost like celebrity worship. It's like Hollywood meets the body of Christ. And I, I, I love Paul because he wouldn't have any of that. He said, no, this is not about me. I'm just an instrument in God's house. I'm going to share something a little personal. It's just a story that happened because it, it still kind of makes me laugh. 
And those that know me understand this, and I've told this before, but uh, I was doing some ministry out in Las Cruces a number of years ago and just was preaching, and it was one of those times when, for whatever reason, I guess there was about 200 people, for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit just showed up. I mean, he showed up and poured himself out, and people were being saved, and we were praying for people, and they were getting healed, they were getting filled with the Spirit, uh, they were getting delivered. It was I, I just kind of stood back and said, I don't know what you're doing here, but this is amazing. We were there for two or three hours. And, and, uh, and afterwards, some of the, a few of the folks said, would you go out to coffee with us? And, you know, I'm not an incredibly social person, but I thought, okay, you know, I kind of get nervous around people, but I went out with them. The problem is, is when I'm out with people, I tend to get goofy. Uh, because I get nervous, and so I'm out with people for lunch and uh, for the people for dinner. We just had this amazing night, and you know I'm making little worms with the with the straw wrapper, and you know telling goofy jokes. And I finally looked over, and I realized they weren't laughing. And and this one lady said, "We thought you were a man of God." And I said, <laughs> "I said you mean that guy back at the church? That wasn't me. That was Jesus. Now this is just me." So I realized the, the, the beauty of what Paul said. He said, it's not Apollos, it's not Paul, it's God who gives the increase. I promise you, any good that ever comes out of my life is Jesus. It's not because of me, because I'm just me. We're just vessels. Paul said, we hold this treasure in earthen vessels. We're just clay pots. So that the excellency of, should be, of the power of God should be known to be of God and not of us. And it's good to keep that perspective. I think it would cut down on our celebrity worship quite a bit. Paul considered himself the chief of sinners. I think it's an amazing verse. 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of, all, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. The word is protos. Paul was the prototype of sinners in his own eye. And you know what? If you follow, I believe it's Psalm 139, search my heart, O God, if you follow that every day and let God search your heart, you're going to find something out. You're the chief of sinners too. And we are only here because of the blessed redemption of the blood of Jesus. Paul really understood that. He was also, Paul was a truth teller. Galatians 4.16, Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? At one point he told the church, he says, I think it was Corinthians, he says, you're willing to accept it if people slap you in the face, if people abuse you, if people rob you. What have we done? We've loved you. We've told you the truth. But a truth teller in this age is more important than it ever has been because this is a day, according to the Old Testament, the truth has fallen in the streets. We see an entire nation being socially engineered where you determine your sexuality based on what you feel. And it's gotten to a point of almost social insanity. It's like me standing up and saying, I feel like I'm a giraffe. I don't care if I was born a boy, I'm a giraffe. Now, you can't support that type of thing, so we need to speak truth in the middle of those situations. And people are not going to want to hear the truth. There's a lot of churches that don't want to hear the, church, the truth. I, I've had many times when I've had to confront an issue about Christian yoga, about some of these teachings, or about you know, uh, uh, contemplative spirituality coming to the church, and first thing I heard people say is, well, have you talked to the people? You know, no, I can't get through their bodyguards. 
I can't even get a phone call through 15 secretaries to confront the situation. But when I have had a response, it's always been, who are you to judge us? I'm like, it's not me. I'm just giving you the Word of God. I don't know everything, but I do know when the Word of God says this and a person does that, I am responsible for saying what is true. And folks, if there's ever, and I'm thankful because I have no fear whatsoever that this church or this pastor is ever going to go in that direction of diluting the Word of God. Y'all are blessed to have a pastor that will do that. And in this day and age, we need far less, we need far more truth-tellers and far less ear-ticklers out there. And uh, may God grant that we would be a truth-teller like Paul. Paul was a man of weakness. Uh, he was a man of fear and trembling. I know we don't like to hear that, but that was Paul in his flesh. That was Paul in himself. And he said this about himself in 1 Corinthians 2.3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That was the reality. That was Paul without the Holy Spirit working through him. And the Holy Spirit worked through him was a whole other thing. He would talk to me. He says, you know, you've said um, he's not very eloquent. He's kind of weak. But I'm not coming to you as Paul. I'm coming to you in power and demonstration in the Holy Spirit. And let me tell you something. When the anointing of God's authority is on a man or a woman of God, you better stand down. Because it doesn't matter what they look like in the flesh. When God speaks through a person, you better listen. Paul understood that, that it wasn't him but Christ who lived in him. He wasn't eloquent. 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 5, that filled with the power of God and my speech when preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There again, he's always pointing to the Holy Spirit. He's always pointing back to Jesus. Paul was greatly hated. There was 40 men at one point that were sworn not to eat until they'd killed him. Paul's response was never to hate back. Paul's response was to continue to pour out the love of God on whoever he met. Paul was continually undetermined, yet he persisted that he was going to go to Rome and preach the gospel to Caesar. Nothing was going to deter him from that. Now I want to talk a little bit uh, for a few minutes about something that kind of uh, crossed my uh, heart the other day, uh, several months ago actually, I heard an expression that really just kind of got into my spirit. It's a sports expression, and I don't believe we, we mold the church according to culture, but I think we can look at some things and say, you know, I'll take a little bite of that because it makes sense spiritually to me. And one of these expressions was called having skin in the game. It's used in sports. It's also used in politics. The basic idea is that you can be a Monday morning quarterback and you can watch the game, you can comment on the game, you can talk about the game and the players and who failed and who succeeded and you know, who tanked. You can do that with politics. You can discuss you know, the Clintons and the Trumps and the uh, Pelosi's and, and, and Mitch McConnell's. The Monday morning quarterbacks. They don't have a skin in the game. The people that are down on the playing field, you know, they're doing the body slamming, right? The people that are out there on the football, they're doing the body slamming. They're the ones that are in the blood and the mud, and they're getting all cut up and scarred, and they're, they're leaving it all out there. They're, they're 100% on. There's nothing that's been more of a heartbreak to me over the last 20 years than bloodless evangelical ministry. 
We've built it into something God had never intended it to be. I, I can tell you how to have a mega church. It's a very simple plan. It kind of runs like a, an Amway plan or uh, any kind of uh, multi-level marketing. You just get five or six people, sell them on the idea, get those five or six to get five or six more. Pretty soon you're moving up the ladder of the empire. And you're up here at the pinnacle removed from all the little people down here that are doing all the grunt work. That's not the kingdom of God. That's not having skin in the game. You know they have virtual pastors now? They're, they're, they're having holographic pastors where the pastor doesn't even show up. They just beam him in on stage. You know, and I suggest that we give him a virtual salary if we're going to have a virtual pastor. Bloodless ministry. Uh, you know, and there is a need, especially as a church grows. And I have nothing against organization. It's important. Moses at some point was told by his father-in-law, you can't carry all of this by yourself. You need help. I'm all about that. I think that's very important. But when it becomes an empire where the point of you being the leader is that it can put you in a place of removal from the people and more perks and more salary and limousines and you know, more magazines articles, it's just abhorrent to me. Because what did Jesus do? He served, he washed feet. And if you're going to serve and be in ministry, you're going to have to have skin in the game. And I've always said the church is in the church to are willing to get coffee spilled on our rugs. That works for the church. That works in our individual lives. We need to be willing to have that heart that's willing to bleed, that's willing to get in the blood and the mud of real life where people live today to preach the real gospel. It's very important. Paul modeled that. I don't know what I, I think I knew from the very get-go what ministry was going to be about, but I know a lot of stuff in Bible school, it was like there was a certain place you were supposed to reach, a certain pinnacle, which meant numbers. I'm not trying to be critical. I'm just giving you the real picture of what a lot of people come out of seminary and Bible school are expecting to happen. You're not really a success till you reach this amount of numbers, till you get this amount of people, till you've written this amount of book. Let me tell you what real ministry is, because Paul modeled this. Paul modeled what real ministry was going to be like. He said in 2 Corinthians 6, 3 through 10, he said, We give no offense in anything that our ministry be not blamed, but in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet all rejo always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. That's not a pretty picture of ministry. That's Paul saying, you think it's this, but let me tell you what it's really like, because you know what? There are a lot of happy people coming up behind Paul. You have to remember, Paul was all in. Paul started all these churches, and he was uh, leadership over all these. He would go from church to church, what they call circuit preaching, to come in and see how they would plan it. He'd go in and see how they were doing. And you know what? By the time he got halfway around to the other churches, this little band of people would come in and completely undo what he started in another church. 
And it broke his heart, and he had to go back and start all over again with these churches. He was 24-7. He wasn't removed. He was 100% body, soul, spirit committed to the calling and to the people that God had put under him. And so at one point, he says, uh, this is 1 Corinthians, I believe, 2 Corinthians, 11, 23 through 29. He says, and he's talking about these people who were undermining. He says, are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. He says, okay, let me, they want to play this game? Let's put it on this one. I speak as a fool. Are they ministers of Christ? I am more. And then he gives his pedigree, which I think is astonishing and, and, and humbling. He says, in labors more, he says, why do you want to know what my qualifications are? Here they are. And he doesn't give his long history with the Jewish community or his upbringing. He says, he says, my qualifications are in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths more often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Now, y'all might know this already. I'm sure you do. But the, the, that 40 stripes minus one, the 39 lashes, it wasn't 40 because 40 would kill you. It was just 39, which just at the edge of death. So Paul received, and at some point, if it was me, after the second time, I would have been, seriously? I just was horrible the first time. And then third time, fourth time, fifth time? This is what Paul went through. You know, Paul was not a shining physical example of what it is to walk in the glory. Paul was, and I, there's, I can't prove this, but I think, and some scholars would agree with me, that at some point I believe Paul was probably almost blind because he wrote to the Galatians, see with what large letters I have written this. And he said, I testify that if you, possible you would have given me your own eyes. And I promise you, after five times 39 lashes, he wasn't walking straight. He was probably just barely moving. But isn't it astonishing that he was so burned up with the calling that nothing could deter him from that calling? He still went from place to place, no matter how he felt, no matter how much pain he was in. And he's showing me this example. You want to know what ministry is? I'm looking at Paul. I'm looking at this. Five times, 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils of the wilderness, in perils of the sea, in perils of, among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside the other things, and it says in the King James, what comes upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Paul was such a pastor that he carried all those churches in his heart. Paul had skin in the game. Paul had the true humility that comes with a servant of God. 1 Corinthians 15.9, Paul says he was the least of the least. You know, we had an expression with my youth, and we still do it from time to time. And I just read a verse one time uh, in uh, Philippians 2.3. It says, let every man, man uh, uh, count to the other as being better than himself. It's not an exact translation, but it's pretty close. Think of the other person as being better than yourself. So we had this deal that we did with, with our guys, and it was like, I'd look at them and say, you're better than me. And they'd say, no, you're better than me. That's something a Paul model and something I wanted. I wanted to have that heart like that of a true servant. Paul was compassionate and passionate. Paul said in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, 29, who is weak and I'm not weak? 
Who is made to stumble? I do not burn with indignation. He had that heart for the lambs of God that he was willing to hurt when they hurt, bleed when they bled, and if someone hurt him, God helped the person that hurt him. Paul was going to go after him. And all that was a righteous heart of God. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7, 3, I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that you are in our hearts to die and to live with you. You know, it's easy to send a check overseas for missions. And I'm glad that we do that. I think it's one of the reasons God spared our country is because we have done that so extravagantly and continue to. But it's another thing to go where the people are. It's another thing to, as a person, as a believer, say, God, send me to the least. Send me to those who are really hurting. Put me with those people where I can really lose something for the kingdom if I get involved. I want to have that heart of Paul that's not willing to be bloodless and to stand back and say, you know, I'm just here and you little people down there, but he's able to say, I'm with you. To live and to die with you. My heart is with you. That's the true heart of servant because that's the heart of Jesus. That's not an Amway plan. I've literally heard people say that Jesus had the greatest multi-level marketing plan there was. He took 12 disciples and he trained them and sent them out. That's kind of a bloodless way of looking at it because Jesus wasn't looking to self-promote. Jesus poured out his very life for them. He poured out his life, not just what he taught them, but himself. He poured out his heart, his life into them because life begets life in Jesus Christ. You know, we think about teachers these days, even the body of Christ, teachers. You know, we think it's a very Western idea. A guy gets up, talks for half an hour, goes home. We go there, listen for half an hour, write a couple of notes, goes home. But Jesus, that was not his, the, the rabbinical style of teacher was pouring everything he was in his disciples. And what did they do? They went and they poured themselves into the next generation, and the next generation, and the next generation. You can't really teach youth ministry, by the way. It's about getting your heart broken for this generation, and there's never been a generation. Folks, we're losing this generation if we don't have a lot of believers start to pray and start to get their heart broken for this generation. We're losing this generation. But you know what? We need mothers and fathers in the Lord to step up and say, I want in the game. You think you're not relevant. You think what you have to offer is not worth it. You have no idea this most fatherless generation in history. And what I see when I look at this generation, I see the heart of Paul, and I'm going to share this one thing about him, and then I'm going to turn it back over to Pastor Charlie. There was a young man who was probably bullied beyond belief. Bullying is not a new thing. It's very old, and there was a young man in Paul's time that was probably bullied horribly. He couldn't play with his school friends. He couldn't go to church. He was rejected everywhere he went, and every time he went somewhere, they would whisper a name, and that name was Momzer. He's a Momzer. Well, what's that? A Momzer was a Jewish expression for 
a child that was both Jewish and Gentile, born to a Jewish parent and a Gentile parent, and they were despised. They were hated. They were kept from every single bit of the life of the Jewish people. So what an amazing thing to read in 2 Timothy 1-2 when Paul writes to Timothy, my dearly beloved son. And in one moment took a reject and turned him into a prince. It's the commission that's before us. We're all ex-something. We've all been somewhere. And Jesus looked at us and brought us into his kingdom. You're my son. You're my daughter. Having skin in the game is having the guts to get out in this generation and say, I want to do that to the least, to the most hurting person out there. I want to bring them into the kingdom of God as a son and a daughter and bring the kingdom of God into their life. God bless you. Thank you so much for being here this morning.